Well, we're into week four of our series, It's Christmas, and I'm just so excited that we get to um, continue in God's Word as we're drawing nearer and nearer to that day that Jesus was born, the day we celebrate his birth, and it's just, it's such a wonderful time of year. Um, but if you've missed any of our previous messages in this series, you know, we've had everything from red dragons to timeline splitting. Um, and then to people living boldly, pointing towards Jesus. So if you've missed any of this series, definitely go check them out on our website, fwcchurch.ca. Just click the Church Online tab, and our Spotify and YouTube links are both there. Well, today's message I've titled, When Love Came Down. And there's been so many songs, poems, stories, plays, movies, you name it, written about love over the years, and yet so often that's a part of our life that we find that there's something missing, that there just seems to be some kind of a void present when we think about love. And there's, an, there's like an emptiness there. It's like a piece of a puzzle missing. And in this message, we're going to look at a couple of kinds of love, as well as what Jesus' birth means for each of us in our quest to find love. But as we start this morning, I just want to open in prayer. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful that we get to just join together in this place, that we get to join together in worshiping you, lifting your name on high. And God, we just thank you that you gave the gift of your son, Jesus, that we get to have this relationship with you, Lord. So God, as we open your word, we just pray that you would be speaking to each one of us this morning and that we would each receive something fresh, something special from you. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, when we think of love, it can come in many, many different forms, but there's just two kinds of love that I want to focus in on for a little bit here. And the first kind of love is a love for something because it's valuable. You know, for me, it might be something like one of my guitars. I love my bass guitar. It's hanging in my office right now. It doesn't come out too often, but I love it. It's got value. I love playing it. I love looking at it. I love holding it. It's my bass guitar. I love it. And Corbin plays bass now, and he's already said, when you die, I want your bass. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, buddy. But it has value. It's something valuable. For some of us, it might be our clothing that we wear. Some of us, it might be electronics. Maybe it's that Apple Watch or that iPad. Maybe it's you know that gaming computer you're putting together. Maybe it's your jewelry items that have value. Some people wear an incredible amount of money's worth of jewelry on their fingers. And I'm just not that person, thankfully. Uh, some people, it might be their cars or trucks, you know. Our trucks, our cars, they have value to them because they're worth money. You know, last year, I had the disappointment of having to have my Dodge truck jumped by a Ford. This year, I got to jump a Ford, so it paid off. But, uh, you know, those things in our lives, they have value because they are worth something. They're worth something to just about anyone who had received them. If I went and just gave my Dodge truck to someone, even if they aren't a Dodge person, they'd be like, score, I just got a truck, right? Same idea with any of those other items I just listed. So there are things that have value because they're valuable. They're just worth something to anyone. Now there's another kind of love, and it's a love that gives value to an object. Lots of us have something that may not be valuable to anyone else, but it's valuable to us. Maybe it's a stuffy that you've had since you were a baby. 
Maybe it's your high school hoodie with your grad year down the arm. You know, the ones you see in Value Village all the time. No one's buying them because they didn't graduate that year. <laughs> Maybe it's the tattoo that no one else knows about, no, no one else knows about but it means the world to you. Well, for me, one of those things is my baby blanket, and I have it here today. Aw. I told my mom I was bringing this out this morning, and she did the same thing. So this, I don't actually know who gave this to my mom. I don't even know if I ever met the person. But this is my baby blanket. It's massive. Like, I could sleep with this now still. But this blanket has little to no monetary value to anyone else. It's almost 40 years old. It's come in contact with more strains of the cold and flu than almost anything else I've owned. It's been drooled on, it's been spat up on, and it's been washed countless times. Thank goodness. It doesn't stink, fortunately. It's aged, worn, and it isn't as cozy as those nice, new, fluffy baby blankets that babies get nowadays. My kids' blankets were way softer than this one. But I love this blanket. I give value to this blanket because it's mine. You can't buy it from me. I will not sell you this blanket. Even if you offered me a million dollars, this is my blanket. You do not get my blanket. This is my froggy blanket. Okay? So that's my blanket. I'm going to put my blanket away now because it's practically an antique. Like me. All right. Now you might be wondering, where are we going with this? Why is Brad showing off his baby blanket this morning? <laughs> well, this kind of love that I want is the kind of love that I want to spend the rest of my message on. It's the kind of love that gives value to something, something that is altogether unworthy and makes it worthy. It gives value because it chooses to. We give value to something because we choose to. And in the same way, God gives value to us because he chooses to. We don't innately have that value. We don't innately have that worth, but he chooses to give it to us. In Romans 5, 8, reading from the English Standard Version this morning, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still falling short of the mark, while we were still not measuring up to his glorious standard, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, back the train up. I thought we were talking about Christmas. We're talking about Jesus dying already. <laughs> well, in order for us to really grab a hold of how love came down that Christmas day, we need to view it through the window of how great God's love for us really is. Even when we were falling short of God's glory, when we couldn't reach that thing, when we couldn't reach the bar, let alone climb over it, you know, lots of us, we see the bar there, we can't even, like, grab it. <laughs> Jesus died for us. So let's go back to that peaceful night. <laughs> that silent night. When Jesus was being born, the Messiah was arriving, and all around was going to be happy, jolly, and bright. The only thing is, as mentioned over the last couple of weeks, it wasn't exactly what people on that day were expecting. They weren't expecting the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to come in the way that he did that Christmas. It wasn't even called Christmas then. Sorry if that burst anyone's bubble. But up until the end of John 1, 
the general consensus would have been that the Messiah was going to come to restore or rebuild the temple. You know, the temple had been desecrated, had been like bad stuff had gone on in Israel over the years. And part of their mentality was that God was going to send a Messiah to come and redeem the people, but ultimately also rebuild that temple and restore it to its former glory. They knew that God had promised someone to come and save them, but they were viewing it through a small window. They just had this little picture of what that was going to look like, and it might have even been facing out the wrong side of their building. <laughs> but in John 2, 13 to 22, we see the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And I, I love this story. Um, I could go on about this story more, but in holy anger, he's flipping tables, kicking out vendors and money changers, including their sheep, oxen, pigeons. And he finished off by saying, destroy this temple, and after three days, I will raise it up. On a surface level, this looks like it would have just been something said in spite of those present, or to put them in their place. Like, come on, guys. Like, just if you destroy the place, I'll rebuild in three days. I got this. But in reality, this was him expressing how great God's love was for them. That was what he was actually saying there. He was trying to express to them how great God's love really was for them. Now, when we look at the birth of Jesus, the term used for what took place was incarnation. The definition of incarnation is a person who embodies in the flesh a deity, spirit, or abstract quality. Essentially, it's God becoming man. Now, many could and would say that the thought of God, creator of the universe, choosing to become a human sounds crazy. It's a fair proposition. But is it, though? Is it really that crazy? If we look back to Genesis at the creation of humans, it says in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Humans are a reflection of who God is. We are created to be like God, to reflect his characters and his qualities. I don't know if we necessarily, like, really look like him too much. I have no idea. I haven't seen God face to face. If I did, I might not be here. <laughs> have you met Jesus? <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but, you know, if... <laughs> It's a funny joke, but we're not going to go there today. We were made in God's image. Now, on top of that, the presence of God would abide, rest in, or hang in, hang out in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So at the end of Exodus, when the Israelites built the first temple in the wilderness, it was to create a dwelling place for the Lord, a place where God could be among the people. In Exodus 40, verse 34, this is right after they finished building the first tabernacle. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they had built this, really, it's like a tent structure to give essentially a home, a central place for God to be present among his people. Later on, King David's son Samuel built the temple, so like the, more the, brick and stone and gold and all that fancy stuff building. And again, the presence of the Lord dwelt in it after the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple. It says in 1 Kings 8, verse 10 and 11, 
And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This was a foreshadowing of God being in relationship with us through Jesus. It was making a place for God to dwell among man. So if God were to come to earth in the form of anything, human seems the most appropriate, just as it would be inappropriate for him to become in the form of like a squirrel or a cactus or something like that. It just wouldn't make sense. But God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be in relationship with his people. From the very beginning when he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve to the Old Testament after sin came in, when he instructed them to build a place where he could reside among his people. It's amazing. So here's how all of these dots connect. And some of this ties into the message a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the sanctuary. But in the Old Testament... The only place for God's presence to dwell was in the inner court. You know, and there was no statue of God in there because God forbid it. He didn't want them worshiping to a statue like other um, religions and belief systems in that day and age did. The room was empty because it was for him to dwell in, not for a picture of him. You know, a high priest would be able to enter there once a year as part of their... Um, sacrificial sacrificial rituals that they would do for atonement and all of that. Once a year, the high priest would be able to enter that place. And due to the state of the world and the sin that was present, this was God's way of showing his love for his people. This was the extent of their relational connection to God in that time. So when they when God instructed them to build that temple, when God instructed them to build the tabernacle, it was because he still wanted a relationship with his people. It's because he still wanted a relationship with the world that he loved so dearly, even though sin had caused that separation. Now, jumping ahead back to Jesus flipping those tables and cleansing the temple. You now, I am just sidetrack here for a second. I imagine Jesus the night before sitting by a fire with the disciples, and he's just kind of sitting there crafting something. and temples are like, or the disciples are going, what are you doing, Jesus? And it's like, oh, I'm just making a whip. <clears throat> what are you doing, Jesus? I'm making a whip, <laughs> right? Because he had a whip when he went into, the, like, he was driving people out with a whip from the temple. I mean, it's just, it was crazy. Sorry, that's where my brain goes. But anyway, when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, he was saying that the building was no longer the temple. It wasn't about the building anymore. But God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. The birth of Jesus signified that love had come down and that God was now living and moving amongst his people. He was no longer confined to one space where only a high priest could go and see him once a year type thing. Now God was moving among the people. God was in the form of Jesus, son of God. Fully God, fully human. John further expresses this right at the beginning of his gospel when he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
I love how this echoes the creation story. When God spoke the world into existence, he spoke, the word came out, and it was part of him. And now the word has become flesh and dwells, lives, and interacts with the people. It's amazing to look at. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't hold on to the God card. He came humbly as a human being so that he could have relationship with the people again. This is huge. This shift went from, only, from man only being able to really have a relationship with God through the high priest of the temple to God living among men and women. It was the first shift back to how things were at the start of creation where God would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And I, I just want to put this one more plug in there. This eco course that we're going to do in January, it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to going deeper in the word with you guys. So I really encourage you, sign up for it. Come on out and I, let's just go deep. Let's, let's see what the word of God really has to say in a theological way. The gospel of John shows the greatest love story ever. Now, if you look at the whole book of the gospel of John, it's, it really is the great love story. That's the focus of his book. It's all about love. It's the gospel through the lens of God's great love for each and every one of us. It starts with showing how Jesus came in human form to reestablish relationship with the people, moves forward to a different mentality of how God was wanting to interact with people, that the temple building was no longer the central place for God's presence. Then it focuses on how Jesus cared for the people. Jumping forward to just before Jesus was heading to the cross, we see the Last Supper where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. This is John 13, 1 to 20, and we're going to read this. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And when it says he loved them to the end, what it actually means is to, with the utmost, or with everything he had, he loved them. During supper, when the devil had already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them down and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I do what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. <laughs> Peter, the bold-headed, defiant one. <laughs> J- 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not, on, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. As in, I'm all in then. <laughs> Get the whole thing done. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew he wa who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. There is a lot packed into that scripture. You could read that 20 times over and keep pulling different things out of there. But the foot washing points ahead to the ultimate act of self-giving, self-humiliating love on the cross through which Jesus' followers are made clean so that, like the temple itself, they are fit places for the Spirit to come and dwell. And through that indwelling, made able in the wider world to love as Jesus had loved them. You see, when Jesus was talking about washing the feet and that you should do as I do, he's saying, just as I loved you with my utmost, with my everything, I love these people, so you should do to the world. You should take the same kind of love, the same kind of love that takes the form of a servant in humility and serve one another. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross moved the dwelling of God's spirit to its third phase. It went from being in that tent or the building to being in Jesus to now being in God's people. This gift of his Holy Spirit means we have God's presence with us wherever we go worldwide now. It's no, no longer confined to that one building. It's no longer confined to just where Jesus was walking the earth. Now he's given the gift of his Holy Spirit that can spread around the earth through his people. And because his spirit now resides in us, we get to take his love and spread it everywhere as well. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are made for love. And ultimately, we find ourselves through love, both that we give and receive. In John 13, 34 and 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
That's why when people come into a place like this and they see what's going on, they experience what's going on out in the lobby when they first show up to the hanging out in this room and just the general love that's in the place, it goes, huh, that's different. It's because they haven't experienced that kind of love, that kind of serving one another. That's why we, we call it a service. <laughs> we're serving one another as we're coming together to worship our king. The kind, this kind of love only comes through the victory won on the cross. It comes as part of the new creation. And just like my blanket has no real worth, except for to me. <laughs> Can't have it. I said no. That blanket is given worth by me. And each one of us is not really worth, worthy of the gift that Jesus gave, but he has made us worthy. He has given us value because of his great love for us. You see, he is the answer to all our longings, desires, our anguish of our broken and messed up loves, our obsessions, and even our own self-absorption. He's the answer to all of that. You know, it can be really easy to just focus on ourselves. It can be really easy to focus on some of the wrong things. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus and live with the kind of love that he modeled, suddenly it all changes. The world becomes a little brighter. Even Jesus in his ultimate act of love found betrayal and denial, though. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his 12 closest followers, Anyone ever been betrayed by someone? You know, don't put your hands, but lots of us have been betrayed by someone close. Lots of us carry hurts that we don't want anymore. Peter, who is also one of Jesus' 12 disciples, denied him three times while he hung on a cross to die. Wow, I haven't faced that kind of denial before, where it's like you're out on a limb, literally. And your closest friends are saying they don't know you. Wow. But as Jesus so wonderfully demonstrated, the answer to betrayal and denial is simply a further outpouring of love. That's how he lived his life. That's how our God, Jesus, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, lived his life in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, in the face of friends deserting, in the face of friends backstabbing and hurting, he chose to love more by laying down his life. Jesus does not simply love us when we are lovable, but loves us all the more. Give his very life for us when we are horribly unlovable. His love is unconditional. That's what Paul meant when he said in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, that Jesus came to earth in the form of a human, destined to lay down his life for each of us, that his Holy Spirit could dwell with each of us should we choose to accept him. That's, that's the simplicity of it, should we choose to accept it. And out of that, we can show 
give and extend love to the world as we follow Christ's example. That's our job as the church, is to love as Jesus loved us, to love each other, to love our neighbors, our friends, our communities, just as God loved us. While we stand together this morning, and if the worship team wants to come back up, This morning, there may be some of you who are online with us or here in person, and you may, be, um, you may have never heard this kind of love before. Why would someone lay their life down for me when they don't even know me could be what's going through your mind? Well, Jesus can see creation from beginning to end. He, he knows you better than you might know yourself, and he loves unconditionally no matter what you may have gone through, no matter what you may have done or been through, Jesus loves you. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you and you're here in this room and you want to experience Jesus' love for the first time, you want to ask him into your heart, just slip your hand up and I'd like to pray with you. And if you're joining with us online, the same goes for you. You can accept this gift right now very easily. And it's just done with a simple prayer acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And again, prayer is just us talking to Jesus, just like I'm talking to you right now. So just repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your gift of love. I accept you as Lord and Savior, and I welcome you into my life today. Be with me forever in your name. Amen. That's as simple as it is. And if you did that for the first time, whether here in person or online, party's going in heaven because that is the best decision you can ever make in life. And before we go this morning, I'd like to just pray for everyone else in the room that we would just have a greater revelation of God's love for us and that we would be able to extend that out to the world. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your great love. We thank you that you came to earth, that you showed us what true love really looks like, Jesus, that it's a laying down of one's life for one another. So God, we just pray that you would continue to reveal your love to us in new ways, that we would have a greater understanding of the love you have for each one of us. And Lord, that as we follow you, as we follow your example, Jesus, we would be able to show that same kind of love to the world to one another, to our communities, our friends and families. So we just thank you for your people. We thank you that you are doing a work that only you can do in each one of us, Jesus. In your name, amen.